A very good morning if you've just joined me. We're hearing highlights from the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature that happened earlier this year. The festival showcases authors, writers, broadcasters and thinkers who visit the festival to share their work and ideas. We're here now from Graham Simpson, the author of best-selling and hugely popular novels, The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. We're here now, Graham, talking about the brief synopsis of The Rosie Project, being interviewed by Rosie Goldsmith. Can I, can I ask, who, who's read the, who hasn't read The Rosie Project? Who hasn't? Okay, who hasn't? Okay, there's a few hands up there, so can I, I just put them in context. Go for it. Don is a 39-year-old socially challenged professor of genetics who decides at the age of 39 that he needs a partner. Why? Because married men live longer. Research proves it. And they're happier. Well, Don wants a bit of that, so he puts together his 16-page double-sided questionnaire to get eliminate all the women who've given him grief in the past and are the reasons from never getting a second date, and he sets out the internet to find the perfect woman. Meantime, he meets a woman called Rosie who checks none of the boxes. She drinks, she smokes, she turns up late, she's a barmaid. But she's on a mission of her own. She wants to know who her biological father is. Her mum had a one-night stand on graduation night and took the secret of Rosie's father's real identity to her grave. And they know it's one of the men in the graduation photo. So the two of them set out through surreptitious testing of DNA, Don being a geneticist, to find Rosie's true father. All I need to tell you now is that it's a romantic comedy. Bravo. (laughs) I think you've done that before. Um, Now, okay, so Don's um, a professor of genetics, um, and I know you all have... I mean, the thing is, he will have been asked most questions many, many times. I'll try and ask them in a different way. You never know. Um, But... And sorry for the question. I mean, is the fact that you were an IT consultant and data modeler, whatever that is... Am I an SB? Yep. I have no idea what a data modeler is, but it sounds good. Um, is the fact that you were an IT consultant, does it have any effect? And did it have any kind of drive on how you wrote this book? Oh. And on Don, on the creation of Don, who is... Well, well sure. Um, so so what, what happened was that at the age of 50, I decided I wanted to be a screenwriter instead of an information technology consultant. You know, classic sort of transition. Um, <laughs> Most well, people, well, how many people have done that? Not well, many. Simon Singh <laughs> was talking about it yesterday. Simon was talking about guys who were prof- mathematics professors um, who went off and became writers on The Simpsons. And that was actually my dream. My absolute perfect job was screenwriter on The Simpsons, specifically back then. But at the age of 50, I went back to, to uni, and by that stage I realised I should be trying to write a feature film rather than land a job on The Simpsons. And I knew that good stories often come out of original characters. And I looked around me, and the people that I was studying with had all come out of arts backgrounds. And I thought, what sort of characters might I know that they don't know so well? And geeks, I thought. I'd graduated in physics, I worked in information technology for 30 years, I did a PhD in a science faculty, I knew geeks from the inside out. <laughs> yeah, literally. So, and I had been a little socially awkward at times in my own life. So, haven't we all? So, yeah, so um, I thought, let's start with a character like this. At the time, at the beginning, I made him a physicist, because I'd studied physics, and I thought this would be a drama, this film, we called The Face of God. Um, and we would, we would watch this film and we would learn about quantum mechanics, cosmology, and so forth as we went. And obviously things changed a lot over the, the way that progressed in, in the process dumping Clara. I mean, the great thing about Don and Rosie is that you have created two characters who... I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine the world without them now, um, which, is, which is fantastic. Isn't that great to have you know, achieved um, two characters who are there forever? And, I mean, the great thing about these two characters, they are really, they're 
they're ordinary, if you like, but they're also very, very special. I mean, Don is, I think, what do you call it, emotionally atypical. Let's not mince words here. Um, okay. I, I deliberately avoided saying Don had Asperger's syndrome or was on the autism spectrum. The reason I did that was because when I started off writing little stories to work up the character and taking them along to school where I was studying, someone said to me, oh, I guess this guy's got Asperger's. And it, we just didn't use that word because we didn't have that word. We just had the radio club and the chess club and so forth. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, 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 I was growing up, so... So I said, OK, so I, I'm going to take it to class and saying, this is the story of a man with Asperger's syndrome. And all that anybody wanted to talk about afterwards was, so, so this guy's got Asperger's. Um, are you, so um, why is he going out on a date? A guy with Asperger's wouldn't go out on a date. This guy's got Asperger's. Why is he drinking alcohol? People with Asperger's don't drink alcohol. Is he wearing socks? I read somewhere that people with Asperger's don't wear socks, and all they were interested in was the syndrome and learning about the syndrome by reading the book and not actually following this guy's journey. So I said, I'll never say that. And anyway, how would I know? I'm not a psychologist, but since the Rosie Project's been published, not only has the Asperger's community welcomed Don as one of their own... <laughs> And I actually spoke. I was a keynote speaker two weeks ago at an Asperger's conference. <laughs> um, alongside alongside um, Tony Atwood, who's one of the world gurus in Asperger's. And when I sat down a year or so earlier with Tony and started off, well, I'm not a psychologist. He says, well, I am, and Don Tillman has got Asperger's. <laughs> Sorted, <laughs> yeah, okay. basically. So yeah. let, let's, stop, let's stop kidding around this yeah. sort of, oh, slightly unusual, atypical. <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and, and I wanted you to say it, because um, I think that's what's so great about it. I mean, he's a straight, Don's a straight talker, and um, it's so refreshing to hear and read um, straight talkers calling spades spades, if you like. Um, and he says things that many of us wouldn't dare say. Um, and I think that's refreshing as well, too. And that's why he's, he is so, so unusual. But it is interesting. I once interviewed Mark Haddon, who wrote um, you know, the, the, um, the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And he also didn't call Christopher um, autistic. But he was then invited to all kinds of conferences to talk about autism. And, um, and, and it, is, it is interesting because you were taken on, you've taken on the mantle well, to well, a certain li- likewise, degree. Likewise, um, Sheldon Cooper and Big Bang Theory. People read this book and they say, the two books, and say, it's like being in Sheldon Cooper's head. I have never, ever watched Big Bang Theory. So I didn't pinch anything, and I have decided I will not watch it until I've stopped writing Don Tillman for that, for that mm-hmm. very reason. But I had dinner with the director of Big Bang Theory one night, and, and he said to me, we, we choose not to say that um, Sheldon Cooper has Asperger's, and it's much the same sort of reason. We'd, we'd just, I'd just like to put this guy out there and say, you know, if you want to play armchair psychologist, good luck to you. But if you say, hold on, Don's having a drink, people with Asperger's don't drink, okay, he doesn't have Asperger's, just keep reading, he's just this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, now, but, but it, it's great, I mean, you can, you can give this to all kinds of people, and that's um, on so many different levels, but you are also an incredibly funny man, I've only spent a, a short time with you, but it's kind of like a bit painful, ribs are a bit painful, but um, you've obviously wanted to write a comic novel too, I mean, you've got that in you as well, you've got all these things that you've put into this book, these books. Um, comedy was, your, was one of your aims? Has it just come naturally? Have you become a comedian? <laughs> Look, I, I've, got to, I've got to tell you, this is, this is sort of funny in its own way. Um, <laughs> I, I really wanted to write comedy. And so while, I'm stu- while I was studying screenwriting, I got involved in a class where we had to form a group and work on a, a group project. So five of us who wanted to write comedy formed what you call a writer's room. And each week we would spend four hours together trying to write comedy. I swear, all year, 
I did not make those other guys laugh once. <laughs> they just thought I was this old, boring, dad joke sort of guy. And you know, it, was, it was so tough. But nor did one of the other guys who, who, just, um, who just won um, Best Ensemble film at the LA Comedy Festival. Um, and another guy who's making a career in stand-up. It's, you know, it's a really, really tough gig, comedy. And my, my comedy teacher, a guy called Tim Ferguson, the Australian people here will know Tim from, from Doug Anthony All-Stars. He was my comedy teacher. And he confirmed for me, I guess I was already on the comedy path, but he confirmed for me a couple of really important things. And one thing he said was, you know, comedy doesn't mean, just because you're being funny, doesn't mean you can't be emotional. It doesn't mean you can't tackle serious topics. Tim Ferguson's got multiple sclerosis. Tim stands up as much as he can and does his stand-up routine on multiple sclerosis. And he makes you laugh, he makes you cry, and he makes you think. Uh, and that's my mantra. I mean, if you want to read The Rosie Project, as a lot of people do, and say, oh, that was a quick, light laugh, what's next? Sure, I'm not fine. But if you want to read it hard and read it again and say there's something in it, as someone like Bill Gates has said, then, then it's, I hope it's there for you. Mm. There's a wonderful quote from Bill Gates, um, either on the back or somewhere. But, um, but the fact that you care so much about the quality of the writing is really clear in this as well. How long did it take you to write this book? I mean, you, it started off as a screenplay. Yeah, four weeks. <laughs> true, true, actually, at some level, at some level. But at um, what level? Yeah, I mean... Okay, it, I sat down with a blank page... Had a page, not computer. A computer, yeah. Okay, you, a blank page you, you, on the you, computer. <laughs> Come on, IT guy. You're so an sat, IT for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> I sat down. I, I call that a page. That's my idea of a page. Okay. So I sat down with a blank screen, and I typed the Rosie Project open bracket a novel close brackets. And four weeks later, I handed it to my wife and said, "What do you think?" And three weeks after that, I sent it into the publisher. And that was the version that got me a publication contract. Gosh. Okay, now I'll tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> that's all true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is I spent five years working on it as a screenplay. So by the time I sat down to write it as a novel, I knew an awful lot. I, well, I had characters, I had plot, I had dialogue that I was able to reuse in some, in some cases. All I had to add was Don's inner world, and I knew it intimately. So, you know, I'd, I'd done my, the hard yards already, and they were very hard yards. Mm. What about um, the you know, calling everything you know, projects and you know, giving everything the, the capital letters, the Rosie Project, the Marriage Project, mm. the, the Rosie Effect? The, I mean, this is, is a great technique. Um, now how, did you, how did you hit upon that? How about I tell you a story? Tell us okay? another story. We love okay. your okay. stories. <laughs> so I originally graduated in physics, and I did what most people in physics in those days who weren't smart enough to become Stephen Hawking or have a boson named after them did. I went and I enrolled, I went and, uh, into information technology. And, I mean, if you think people today in computers are geeks, you were not there in the 1970s, trust me, okay? So, you know, because we were all the rejects from mathematics, there were no courses, you couldn't study it, you just had the, they said, who might be good with computers? I don't know, people who aren't good with people, I guess, so they, they sort of, <laughs> they got us together, and we were a pretty motley lot, most of us had beards, and so on. Did you and, have a beard? I had a beard. Um, of course I had a beard. Oh, I, was, I, was, I was only 20 years old. I had to look old and, and mature. <laughs> our, our, our manager was 23 or 24. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, that was the way it was. Um, but I'm, I'm sitting at my desk one day, and, you know, just typing away. And look, there was one guy, and he was, you know, when I say there were geeks, we had, you know, there were geeks, and there were geeks, and there was the uber geek. And, and the uber geek 
what, what can I say about him except to say that he was the smartest guy in the department and he was the only person who wasn't a manager who had his own office and nobody complained. <laughs> okay? So one day, he was just the geek out of central casting. I'm sitting at my desk, hardly knew this guy. We sort of, you know, avoided him a bit because he was a bit... He lopes over to my desk <laughs> and he says, Greetings, Graham. I have decided to enrol in a Master of Business Administration degree, part-time. And I said, oh, that's interesting. None of this sort of, you know, nice day, Graham, you don't know me well, and you know that fact. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, can I ask why? He says, I have been stereotyped as a geek. I intend to acquire the knowledge necessary to overcome that stereotyping. And I said, well, fine. I said, um, can I ask um, why you're sharing this with me? And he said, since you suffer from the same problem. <laughs> so I got to know this guy, because I enrolled in a Master of Business Administration, and he said to me, we work together, we should study together, and we should timeshare study with physical fitness. And we would go jogging together. This is 30 years ago, mind you. We would go jogging together while he dumped all the pre-reading into my ear, which he had read, summarised, memorised, critiqued, read the associated readings. I think it was fantastic. Nothing not to like here. And I got very, very fit over that period. He dropped out of the MBA. But we continued to run 30 years later. And this is a man with projects. And he provided me with the starting point for Don Tillman. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Listening to the coverage from the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature from earlier this year and an interview with Graham Simpson, author of best-selling novel The Rosie Project. We join Graham now as he talks about the follow-up book, which was The Rosie Effect. With all these stories, I'm surprised you've only written two books, but um, <laughs> there, I'm sure there are many more to come. Hopefully there are. Um, but who devised this questionnaire, um, the, the Marriage Project questionnaire, which is absolute genius. I mean, it's the back of the book. I actually went through it again mm. this morning just to remind mm. myself how incredible... Oh, you must have the Waterstone Special Edition or something oh, like that, have oh. you? It's, it's got the actual questionnaire in it. Okay. Have, if you've read the book, you'll know there's a, a 16 oh, question... Oh, sorry, W.H. Smith. W.H. Smith. It's actually... It's the, the 16 question... Here we are. Um, this is the marriage project, of course. Is you know, how, how Don... Um, was going to pursue the perfect woman. Um, let's try and find one that um, is really good. Okay. I like to talk about facts, people, theories, events, whatever is on my mind. And whatever is on my mind gets zero points. And Don is always saying zeros, you know. Um, so, I mean, who devised these? It's about exercise. It's about I okay. prefer my martini with an olive. I undertake the ironing task, etc. I go to bed when I feel tired or when my work is done, etc. Two points. <laughs> um, well, the truth it's is, brilliant. I mean, I wrote a book, and in the book there's a questionnaire. It didn't make, it's not, it's non, it's fiction, okay? So there was no, no. Actual, there was no actual questionnaire sitting there. So I just added a couple of questions in the book to be typical of what would be on the questionnaire. But then the, the English publishers, I say the English um, major book chains, are very keen on getting bonus content for their books. So I get a request from my from English publisher, Penguin, saying, you know, distributor X would like some bonus content. Could you give us the questionnaire? Mm. 
So I just, that, I just made it up separately. That, that, <laughs> it, it took about an hour. That was, you know, so that was or, or, the, or the book club questions or whatever. You get or the book, all those sorts yeah, of things. The book yes. doesn't end until quite a lot later, if you know what I mean, because there is an awful lot, no, awful a, lot in it. No, there's a constant string. I mean, this is an interesting thing about being a writer. I'm a full-time writer now, but that doesn't mean I'm full-time writing books. It means my day job's being replaced by what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, talking to people, um, writing fake questionnaires... Um, answer, answering questions for people, um, you know, answering questions to be posted in articles on the internet and Good Housekeeping magazine or whatever, whatever it is. So that actually becomes quite a big part of the job. And I mean, a lot of what writers do today is being out and about and festivals and events and so on. And you're obviously absolutely brilliant at it. It's wonderful. Do you see it as um, an enhancement of the book, or do you just see it as something you enjoy doing as a as a, as a natural performer? Look, I actually think it's part of the job. I, I just think that I, I might as well like it. Yeah. I mean, there's some part of me that says I just like to be spending all my time writing, but that isn't the nature of the job today. And hey, I'm getting old. I don't want to waste. I don't, I don't want to go back to my room after this and say, "Well, that was an hour I'll never get back." I, you know, I want to say, "Hey, what a great fun hour!" So I've, I've thrown myself into doing this part of the job as much as I possibly can because, you know, you only live once. Yeah, true enough. And social media—I mean, that's that's all part of it as well. well social media, okay. Um, I, don't, you, I have retired, at least temporarily, from Twitter. 10,000 tweets, I had a good hard look at it and said, this does no good. This, or, or the impact is minimal for the amount of work it takes. Um, and I would say that to if there's any publishers out there um, who are saying to authors, how many followers do you have on Twitter? And expecting that that will somehow affect the publication of their book. Then that, you better be answering that question with some proper evidence behind you that that actually helps. Because mm-hmm. I don't think it does. And let me just give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm coming out of a data background. I'm actually interested in measuring stuff. Now, you can actually measure the impact these days of, um, of publicity um, by watching Amazon, because the Amazon rankings are updated every hour. So I, I know that if I go on the... Uh, well, I went on the radio at one stage in the UK on drive time with, um, with Simon... Give me his name... Mayo. Mayo, Simon Mayo, sorry, yeah, with Simon Mayo, a couple of million listeners. We were at nowhere on Amazon um, before the event, after it we were number nine. I went on BBC television, New Year's Day last year. We were about 300 on the, on the Amazon charts with the new book just out. In the morning, we were number, um, after that, a couple of hours later, we were number two. You, whoa, what an impact. You can see it happen. Um, Bill Gates tweeted that he loved the Rosie Project to 20 million followers. Didn't move a jot. <laughs> Alan Carr, 4 million followers, same thing. UK Amazon didn't move a jot. I don't think it makes very much difference to you, the author. I think Twitter, social media helps to spread the word. I think what actually sells books in the end is word of mouth. And I think that social media help the trusted word of mouth happen a little bit. But I'm only guessing. I haven't done any measurement. But what I do know is that 10,000 tweets, I don't think have sold me any books. That's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, there we are all thinking that you know, social media really does make a difference. But, uh, Broadcast media, particularly, um, is still out there doing a lot. And the, the best thing of all is is that people recommend your book. Mm, well, we'll do our best. <laughs> Let's get back to the books then. I mean, the, 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 so we've got The Rosie Project, and what happens there, of course, is that um, after various um, 
events, incidents, Rosie and Don do get together. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> you know it's this. It's a romantic comedy. It's, it's a, not, come on. It's Woody Allen. It's just going to have any happy ending. <laughs> They get together. Um, it's the marriage project. And she is not what he, she's not the person he devised the questionnaire for. She doesn't fit any of the criteria abs- at all, which mm. is, 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 is part of the, mm. the joy of the book. Okay, now book number two. This would have been perfect on its own, but we are so happy you wrote a second book. Um, book number two, um, they are married. And these are just slight spoilers, but we want to talk a little bit about the new book. Um, and they are living in New York, where you say something right, or Don says something right at the beginning, which is, is full of eccentric or odd people. Anyway, it's where you can afford to be weird. Mm. That's how you describe New York. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. so they arrive from Australia, and Rosie mm. is doing a, um, a doctorate in... Um, She's doing, she's doing the medical qualification at Columbia University, she's at Columbia and she's finishing off her PhD, which she was doing earlier on, to get advanced standing in the course. So right. she's a little busy. Yeah. <laughs> but then something quite dramatic happens, and after they've been there 10 months and 10 days, according to <clears> Don, and, um, and then she drops a bombshell. Tell us what happens next. A couple of people have been married 10 months and 10 days. Anyone want to have a guess? <laughs> Okay. It's your story. You tell them. <laughs> okay, so, so, so Rosie's pregnant, and I, I sort of hesitate to, to say pregnant because it's almost a word that puts men off reading the book. They say, oh, my God, a book about a pregnancy? This is a book about a marriage under pressure, and the pressure comes not only from Rosie being pregnant but from the fact that Don has invited his best mate, Jean, to come and live with him. Um, having Jean is a serial philanderer whose wife has finally thrown him out, and Don said, come and stay with us. He's also Rosie's PhD supervisor, who she utterly hates. Okay, so he's moved into the house. So there's a it's bit a, of pressure on. It's a flat, on. though, so it's even it's smaller. It's a flat. Oh, it's a yeah. flat in New York, yeah. They've got, they've got in a room. It's too, it's too small. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah. So, and, and Jean's a big character as well. Yeah. So, so I do, do a little... Re- yeah. yeah, and that's, that's what we'd love to hear, some reading from, from the second book. Okay, so the setup here is that Don is incredibly nervous about whether he can, he's capable of being a father. Gene's given him some advice. He said, look, don't worry. You know, they're just kids like little adults. They're not, you know, nothing to worry about. Just go and get some experience. <laughs> so, to solve the immediate nutrition problem, I selected a vegetarian recipe at random from one of the websites. A jog via Trader Joe's sufficed to source all the necessary ingredients for a tofu and squash flan. <laughs> I was left with an afternoon of unscheduled time an ideal opportunity to do some research in line with Jean's advice. It seemed wise to delay the shower and change until after my excursion, especially as the weather forecast indicated a 30% probability of rain. I put my light raincoat on over my jogging costume and added a cycling hat for hair protection. (laughs) There was a small playground on 10th Avenue, a few blocks away. It was perfect. I was able to sit on a bench alone and watch children with their guardians. (laughs) Binoculars would have been helpful, but I could observe gross motor actions and even hear some conversation, especially as much of it was shouted. I was not disturbed. In fact, on the sole occasion a child approached me, it was immediately summoned back. (laughs) I made several observations in my notebook. The children explored for short distances, but routinely checked in return to their guardians. I recalled seeing a documentary in which this behaviour was made more obvious by fast motion replay, but could not recall what type of animal was involved. My phone had substantial available memory, 
So I began shooting my own video. <laughs> Jean would definitely be interested. My recording was interrupted by some kind of communal activity. The guardians and children gathered together for approximately 20 seconds and then moved to the other end of the playground, where my view of them was obscured by a central island of foliage. I followed and sat where I could observe them again. <laughs> but they did not resume their play. I decided to wait and use the time to change the video resolution on my phone in case there was an opportunity to film a longer segment. Due to my focus on the camera operating task, I did not notice the approach of two uniformed male police officers. <laughs> In retrospect, I may not have handled the situation well. <laughs> but it was an unfamiliar social protocol and unexpected circumstances driven by rules which I did not know. I was also struggling with the video application, which I had downloaded because of its superior compression algorithm without due attention to its user-friendliness. What do you think you're doing? This was the marginally older policeman. I guess they were both in their 30s and in good physical shape. Body mass indexes approximately 23. <laughs> I think I'm configuring the resolution, but it's possible I'm doing something different. It's unlikely you will be able to assist unless you're familiar with the application. <laughs> well, I guess we should just get out of your way and leave you with the kids. Excellent. <laughs> get up. This was an unexpected change of attitude on the part of a younger colleague. Perhaps I was seeing a demonstration of the good cop, bad cop protocol. I looked to good cop to see if I would receive contrary instructions. Do you also require me to stand up? Good cop assisted me to stand. Forcefully. My dislike of being touched is visceral, and my response was similarly automatic. I did not pin or throw my assailant, but I did use a simple Aikido move to disengage and distance him from me. <laughs> He staggered back and bad cop pulled his gun. Good cop produced handcuffs. <laughs> the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature happens every year in March and there are events that happen throughout the year. So do look out for those dates. Always enlightening and amazing authors coming to our doorstep here in Dubai. Listening here to an interview with Graham Simpson from earlier this year, the author of The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. And Graham's talking about the differences between the two novels and how The Rosie Effect looks at marriage and how it works between his two central characters, Don and Rosie. And it's all like that. It's all, I mean, you could pick any part of that and it'd just be um, a joy. It really would. Now, this is, so this is the, the father project and it's also the, the, the marriage, the marriage project uh, yeah. in a different way as well too. And he's, he's trying to work out whether he can be a father. Yeah, look, I guess the, in the first book I was asking the question, I was asking questions about, um, about connections, about how we find you know, soulmates, as it were, um, about how we accept or reject other people and how we discriminate. Um, but in the second book, I wanted to look at what makes a marriage work. I mean, I'm trying to cover important things that matter to me, I guess, or that I feel I've got something to say about, even with that veneer of comedy. So my question is, what does it take to make Don's and Mar Don and Rosie's marriage work? And I hope that we find something in that that says, what does it take to make a marriage in general work? I mean, there are so many... Um, it's, it's, mm. it's, it's particularly interesting that you mention that, because I think you mm. could almost pick up the, the, either of these books and say, um, you know, this has got some very useful guidelines for, for um, you know, how you meet people and the kinds of things that you should and shouldn't say, and, um, and then also about marriage and children as well. They're actually quite useful. <laughs> so your books do serve a dual purpose. They're not exactly self-help books, I must admit. But, um. No. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I want to make some... Look, in, a, in a way, Don is an observational comedian. Um, what, Don, Don is the man from Mars who comes in and says, what's this about? I mean, what, what's going on here? And, and the observational comedian is kidding. They really do know what's going on, but they pretend they don't. Don isn't kidding. Don is actually saying, what's going on here? And exposing, I guess, just how fragile some of the rituals and so forth that we have in our lives are. I mean, why do you have to wear a jacket to a restaurant? And he gets in enormous trouble because he doesn't do that. How important is it? As he's saying, he's out on a date, he's trying to impress a woman, these people are supposed to be serving him and instead they're making his life, his life difficult. And you're looking at all kinds of different issues as well. It's not a, just, a, just about straightforward marriages in the sense of a traditional marriage. You talk about lesbian mothers as well. There's a whole... You know, the whole Jean's thing. got his open marriage. Jean's open marriage too. I mean, and Jean's sort of <clears throat> determination to, um, to sleep with a woman from every single country and so on too. And hopefully not. But I will not say that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are so many different areas. And you said earlier that you're not a psychologist, but in fact, um, you know, um, Don is surrounded by psychologists. So um, where did all that psychological insight come from? I'm married to, a, to the um, chair of women's mental health at the University of Melbourne. So <clears throat> a professor of psychiatry, and we've been married for 25 years. So you do talk about the job occasionally? Yeah, look, we, yeah, I'm used to her having you know, her colleagues around. I'm used to having a world where those sorts of discussions take place, where mm. yeah, we sit down for dinner with a Freudian analyst and he's giving us a whole... Uh, who, who, as a matter of fact, I've got a good friend who's a Freudian analyst who just loves the Rosie effect. He liked the Rosie project a lot, but he, he loves the Rosie effect. And it's been interesting seeing what people, um, people who went from the Rosie project to the Rosie effect whether they like it more, less, or, or much the same. And? Well, the, there's, there's a bunch of people for whom it's much the same. It's like turning on their favourite sitcom, there they are again, let's watch another episode or, or five. Um, then you've got a group um, who really like it a lot more, like my friend the psychiatrist. And he likes it a lot more because we go a lot deeper and darker into, into who Don is. He said he cried reading The Rosie Effect because he realised that the pain that Don had to go through in life because everything had to be thought through, that, that he just wasn't doing a lot of stuff naturally. He was, a, he was always a stranger in a strange land, and how tough that must be for him. And he had a, a patient with Asperger's, and he felt it actually gave some, some feeling for that. And then there's a group of people who hate it. And that group of people is largely people who read only romance, and are not, you know, traditionally there are no sequels to romances. You live happily ever after, that's it. So I'm going where you shouldn't go, which is the fact that those of us in relationships know it isn't happily ever after. And they particularly don't like the depiction of Rosie. In the second book, Rosie is not pulling her weight, to put it bluntly. Now, she's under a lot of pressure. She's got plenty of excuses. I gave her every excuse you could reasonably have. She's pregnant. She's under enormous pressure at work. And Don's being a little bit of a jerk on the face of it, you know, bringing Jean into the house, all of that. I mean, he might mean well but he's not being exactly considerate. They're under space pressure, all those sorts of things. Um, but what I really wanted to do is, you know, that famous philosopher Nancy Reagan once, once said, <laughs> marriages are never 50-50. They're always 90-10. And I wanted, it was no point. What, what some of these readers wanted was to see Rosie being wonderful to Don for a whole book. There's no drama in that. I wanted to test Don. And so we had to be in a position where Don was the guy who was required to step up the plate and do 90%, not the guy who was just sitting back and being a pet. And there's a, lot, there's a few people, who, it disturbs me a little, who say, I'm in love with Don Tillman. He's just so scrunchy. Uh, you know, he's just a little pet in a way. Well, he's a man in a marriage. And after a while, that pet is going to wear off. 
And, you know, he's going to have to be able to step up the plate and support you if you're a woman and, you know, mm. if you're his wife and look after you if you're in strife. So I wanted Rosie to need him. <clears throat> and, you know, if, if you say that doesn't reflect very well on Rosie, well, I've had, I had one woman who mounted a really spirited defense. I think she was up on Twitter for a while, um, who's married to a guy with Asperger's. And said, this is so what it's like. Sometimes you do stuff just to get the reaction. Sometimes, mm. you know, you push it to the limit just because you want to make them feel and get some, mm. something back because we're all human. It is very, I mean, it's very moving on that level too. And, um, you know, as a, as a Rosie and watching what Rosie does in both books, um, she's, not, she's not, you know, front of stage. Mm. She is behind the scenes for me, generally. For me, these are books about Tom. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, these... Um, Rosie, look, I, I love that you say that Rosie's a really special character and so forth, but we have seen characters a little like Rosie, even a lot like Rosie in literature before. My, my special character is Don, and I'm interested in, in showing Don. Rosie's an important foil to him. She, I, I write her as well as I possibly can, but I'm really interested in, in taking us on a journey with Don. And one of the reasons that Rosie doesn't come into the first book until quite late why all that stuff where he's mucking around trying to find a woman um, by going to singles nights and all that? I wanted the reader to throw their lot in with Don, to be committed to Don. One of the tricks they teach you in screenwriting is that if you don't meet a character in the first 10 to 12 minutes of a movie, you won't sympathise with them. Mm. I didn't want you sympathising with Rosie, frankly. I mean, I wanted you to understand it. I wanted you to be able to put yourself sort of in her shoes. But that visceral experience of reading the book, I wanted you to be with Don. And it, it's absolutely effective. It has. Um, is, there go, is there going to be a third? I mean, that is the, the natural question, of course, you know. Um, look, look, does there have to be a third for you? Well, it certainly doesn't have to be. I think my, my, my plan at the moment is there'll be a third, um, but it will be about five years down the track. Okay. We know that Rosie's pregnant. It's not a spoiler to say, guess what happens at the end of the book? Um, I'd like that to roll on for about seven years in literary time and then revisit them. Mm. Um, because then I can start making some observations, some comments, um, some exploration about what it means to bring up kids. And I think there's some really tough questions that we face now when we have so much power in bringing up kids, so many options available to us with, with schooling, with you know, fast-tracking them, with being helicopter parents, all this sort of stuff. What, you know, do, one end of the scale, I guess, is the parents who say, my, my son will be a doctor, and that's it. You're going to be the doctor, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. And sometimes families have been forced into, into that sort of way of going, particularly immigrant families and so forth, where that's your way of getting a stake in society. And the other end that says, our kid will be whatever they like, we're not going to interfere in any way. It's impossible really to do either of them properly. So I want to explore those sorts of differences. Yeah, how much is the child autonomous? How much do we uh, do input as parents? Great. Um, and in the meantime, are you, you, you're, uh, there's a film. Um, yeah. Has the film been made? Uh, no. And are you involved? Um, yes. Okay. So uh, very briefly, because I wrote, um, because we had a session the other day on this, or yesterday on this, um, The Rosie Project was originally a screenplay. When Simon & Schuster, my American um, publisher, put up a good bid for The Rosie Project, it popped up on the, on the radar for the studios. I got some very attractive offers. Sony Pictures um, took it on. I got the gig writing the screenplay, or they bought the screenplay rather than the book. Um, and I've done my redrafts of it. It's now in development with, with Sony. They have producers, directors, and rewriters, top-class guys associated with the project. Nothing's guaranteed in Hollywood until the cameras start rolling 
but every week it spends on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's been there eight months or so now, is, is helpful to me and to our, our, our prospects. So you don't know who the actor might be? No, I do not oh. know who's going to play Don Tilman. The single most frequent question I get asked. Oh, who do I, of course. The answer is, to who do I want to play Don Tillman? The answer is that if you watch Twitter and all those sorts of things, you'll see that the names that get kicked around are Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Steve Carell, Paul Rudd, um, Ewan McGregor, Ryan Gosling, people we've seen play that sort of role before. I would, look, I'm sure they'd all do a sterling job, but I would love to see someone cast against type. Mm-hmm. You know, Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. The, the thing, when you, Whoa, what were they thinking? And then because they're a really fine actor, they find something in that character that I didn't find. They bring something new to it because a film is a completely new project. Mm. And what about Rosie? Rosie, again, Jennifer Lawrence for everything at the moment. Um, <laughs> but, but, she's, but she's already played a role like that um, as Tiffany in Silver Linings Playbook. Um, so you know, she's not a million miles away from the sort of Rosie feisty character. Um, I was looking at pictures of Kerry Mulligan the other day and thinking, gee, she looks a lot, you know, like I imagine Rosie, perhaps a little young, but... And she's quite, um, she's quite a, a self-contained character yeah. as well, so a person, I mean, you yeah. can imagine... I don't think of her as Daisy in, um, in Gatsby, where she deliberately plays this very flaky sort yeah. of character, yeah. but, yeah, because mm-hmm. Rosie is anything but flaky. Absolutely. And so what are you, do, what are you doing in the meantime before you, you, know, you settle down and write number three? Um, you're, you write short stories as well? You, oh, no, no, I've got two more story. novels I want to write before number three. So okay. I was this very morning working on um, the next novel, which has got nothing to do with Don and Rosie. Um, it's about a love affair rekindled after 22 years. So a couple who meet in Melbourne in the late 1980s, fall in love, just doesn't happen, go their separate ways, but all through their lives they start to think, that was the one. Mm. I missed it. And 22, 23 years later, they reconnect over the internet. One of them's married. Things are going to get complicated. So that's, that's what I'm working on at the moment. And after that, I'm doing a joint novel with my wife, who's also a published author, um, which is set on the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the famous Pilgrim's Walk in France and Spain in this case, um, over 2,000 kilometres, which is one of the variants of the walk, um, told in alternating chapters. One, the male is a, a bitter 50-something divorcee, and the, the woman is a um, very spiritual but recent widow in her, in her late 40s. And they walk the Camino for diff- quite different reasons and meet. And we write alternating chapters, The Man's and Woman's Voice. Have you, have you done that walk? Yeah, yeah. And so, it, is, it is quite extraordinary. There are stories like that mm. that people will say after the walk, they, they were changed oh, by yeah. that walk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's my, my partner and I walked, my wife and I walked um, 2,000K from roughly Cluny in central France to um, Santiago de Compostela via the coastal route and the Pyrenees and so forth. So it's not the standard route you get, you see. But, yeah, and that was uh, about four years ago. Your wife um, also writes erotic fiction. Not anymore. Um, she, 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 was, she wrote uh, ten novels of erotic fiction under the pseudonym Simone Sinner, S-I-N-N-A. Check um, it out. <laughs> and it's an anagram of Anne Simpson. Um, and, but she, she stopped that now. She's gone to writing mainstream fiction and has her first um, mainstream novel, uh, psychological thriller called Medea's Curse, um, just published about a month ago. Oh. And do you read each other's work? Oh, we, we, we are... Do you read the hot erotic fiction? Well, look, I've got to it tell must you, be a bit weird reading your, your wife's you erotic well, fiction. I, I've got to tell you. I've got to tell you. <laughs> no, don't she tell g- anyone. She gives me the first book to read and says, what do you think of this? And, of course, what I immediately think is, this was in your head? <laughs> <laughs> 
You were thinking, all right, okay. So, so I edited the first, the first book quite, quite closely because she was chasing a contract and then she got a publication contract and was churning them out. And I think I edited it up to about the third or fourth and then, then she had her own editor and it was all happening. Um, but in, in writing the mainstream stuff, we worked very closely together. Just before I came here, I was walking around the shopping centre um, talking to Anne about um, the plot for The Candle, which is the rekindled love affair, and saying, you know, OK, so if this has happened to our female protagonist, you know, what, do you, what would you do under those circumstances? Cast your mind back to when you were 23. What would you have done if this happened and this happened and just kicking it around? So bringing you highlights from the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. And we're listening to Graham Simpson in interview, uh, the author of The Rosie Project and The Rosie Effect. And we pick up the session now as Graham takes questions from the floor. Okay, let's, let's open up. Let's hear some of your questions and we'll get as many questions as we can. And oh. Leslie gets the first question. Thank you. Um, Graham, I'm a huge fan of you, having met you now, and your, your work. So thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the Rosie Project. And like Rosie said, someone told me to read it and I was putting it off, putting it off. And then I'm so glad I did. And then I thought, well, how do you follow that? I was a bit, oh, the Rosie effect, is it going to be as good? And it was as good. Was it as hard to write, having had such a success with the Rosie Project? Did you find it really hard to then start again and, and worry about the success of the second book? Well, okay. I mean, there's two reasons it might be hard to write. One is a sort of psychological pressure of success sort of thing. And in fact, um, when I was offered a very attractive advance for a second book and third um, from my publishers, my international publishers, my local Australian representative said... Graham, I'd advise you not to take it because it'll put pressure on you and it might be a bit... I said, I used to run a business, an IT consultancy. We used to go out there and we used to do serious, you know, six, six-figure, seven-figure sometimes jobs out there where if we didn't make the deadline, not only might we not get paid, we might get sued. And I had to pay people to do that work even if it wasn't, didn't work out, I had to pay their salaries. I said, what's the worst that happens on this one? I don't deliver, they take their money back. This is not very scary, Michael. So, <laughs> so you know, from, from having worked and run a business, this was not a very scary proposition. The other side, though, in, if you like, the technical business of getting it written, it was much, much easier. And it was much, much easier because the toughest job of writing The Rosie Project was getting Don Tillman's voice right. It's a very voice-driven novel, and you can't afford to falter. I had to, feel, had to really just feel that I had his voice and the personality behind that absolutely rock solid. And the second hardest thing when I had that right was getting Rosie's personality and character right so she would be a foil for Don. She wouldn't be the so-called manic pixie dream girl who, who's, who's not motivated for any good reason to help out Don. She's got to have her own needs. They were the biggest things by far. So when I sat down to write the second novel, they were already in place. And also... I was now writing for the second time. If you ever do something difficult for the first time, I'm thinking of stripping an engine, but you might think of making a very complicated recipe or any of those things, you know it's very fiddly the first time. It goes so much smoother the second because you know what works, what doesn't. So I had that for me as well. So it was so much easier. Mm, fascinating. Thank you. Pass the mic from there to there. Graham, you said you. you went back to school um, prior to your writing career. How critical was that for you to sort of study and retrain in order to be able to write these books? How important was it the going back to school? Um, I, I would say absolutely that the Rosie Project would not exist if I hadn't gone back to school. Um, school provided me with um, a, a number of things. One, it, it gave me some theory to what I was doing. Two, it gave me um, feedback on what I was doing. Three, it gave me discipline. 
Um, you, you had to put in assignments, and you were stretched outside your comfort zone, and so forth. And for it gave me a sense, maybe part of the writer's community. So I had people who would support me. I got a writer's group. I knew how the industry worked. So it was absolutely invaluable. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but when people say, what advice would I give to a, a potential writer, um, then I would say, consider very, very hard either enrolling in a writing course or joining a writer's group of people at the same, at the same sort of level. So what do you feel about um, when people mm. say that creative writing schools just produce uniform writers? That, um, I mean, this is, there is a very strong other uh, yeah, an opposing I, well, voice at the moment. Well, I know, I know that most of the time they're talking about um, master fine arts and creative, you know, creative writing and so forth, certainly out of the USA. is that mm-hmm. um, This is what they call a, an, a diploma in professional writing and editing. So it's quite... Well, quite, gen- generally about yeah. is it possible to learn something like writing? I mean, there's, there's look, you know, there's okay, that issue. Okay, well, let, let, me, let me give you what I think. I think that enrolling in a, one of these courses is not going to turn you into, um, you know, uh, Hilary Mantel or Philip Roth or whatever. It, it's not even going to get your book published of itself. But it's certainly not going to do any harm, I, I don't believe. I think if you approach it with any sort of intelligence and say, look, I'm not trying to be pushed into, um, into a mould, then I think it supports it. If you want to know what really makes a writer, it's hard work. But the single most important thing I took from my old career was it took me a very long time to, I was eventually probably the top guy, or one of the top guys in my profession of database specification. Okay? I wrote two books on it. I had a PhD in it, um, in the world. I knew how long it took me to get there. And I figured that if I wanted to be a, a successful writer, I would have to put in an equivalent amount of work. Almost nobody, I know, nobody in my screenwriting course worked half as hard as I did. Uh, I, I made ten films during that time, ten short films. Nobody else I knew made more than two. Um, now, I'm not bragging what a hard-working guy I am. I'm just saying there wasn't any point in doing it if you didn't put up that amount of work in. It's, it, the example I give is a great story about Margaret Atwood. It may not, may not be true. But someone said, Margaret, um, she's giving a talk like this. She said, Margaret, he said, Margaret, I'm a neurosurgeon. When I retire, I was thinking of taking up writing. Any advice? And she said, what a coincidence. <laughs> I'm a writer. I think of becoming a neurosurgeon. <laughs> But, but there are more jobs for neurosurgeons than people making a living out of writing fiction. You've basically got to have the mindset that says, I'm going to have to do the amount of work it would take to be a neurosurgeon, and it doesn't matter how many excuses I've got, they wouldn't work if you're going to be a neurosurgeon, they're not going to work if you're going to be a writer. I mean, you might get to a stage where you write for your own satisfaction, you get a couple of little things published on that, you may even get a book published but not make a lot of sales, well, fine. But if your ambition is to be a you know, best-selling author, then you are going to have to do the yards. Hi, lovely to hear you speak. Um, I was at a workshop yesterday, coincidentally, with your, sitting next to your wife, so we were chatting <laughs> yesterday, and one of the things that he mentioned during the workshop is how difficult it is to translate um, a book into a film where the action, a lot of it is happening inside the main character's head. How, I mean, you're not going to do a, a, a monologue every time Dan is thinking or a narrative. How did you overcome that? Okay. You've got three techniques available to you. So we're talking about the inner world or something. Now, what is he thinking? So Don in the book, um, I gave an example. I won't run through it again. I did an example yesterday, and I know a number of people were here, there yesterday. I won't give the same example. But you know, there's a whole lot of thinking going on in the head. What do you do with that? Well, you've got three techniques available to you. The first technique is voiceover. Now, it's a clunky technique. It's appropriate sometimes. 
I mean, putting aside weird things like running text along the bottom of the screen and so on, but you can do it is voiceover for a start. Um, secondly, and the, the classic correct way to do it is you externalise it. That's why you have buddies. So you, somebody tells their buddy what they're thinking. And that's, you know, in a romantic comedy, the girl's got a buddy, the guy's got a buddy, and they're, they're advising him and saying, I think I'm in love with her, blah, 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 blah. I don't know if I did the right thing last night. You know, just not. So you externalise. And the third way to do it is you ignore it. You actually say, the book is the vehicle for this. You want to describe someone's inner world perfectly, it's the book. That is not what films are great at. Films are great at performance, at external things, so let's just not worry about that. We're not, when we make the movie of The Rosie Project, it won't be. That, you won't have as much observational comedy. You won't have as much of what Don is thinking, but you'll have more performance. You'll have more, that, that scene, the cocktail scene, can be a complete hoot. Yeah. There's lots and lots of opportunities for that. There's moments where just expressions can make you fall about laughing, which you can't do in a book. So one of them is just recognising different media and not trying to um, make the film be something it can't be. Thank you. So you had a, obviously a very successful career as an IT consultant. Um, did you always want to write books, or was this something you thought, well, I've done the IT consultant thing, I've got to the end of that, I'm thinking of something else to do, well, let's write a book. No, it was, look, I was, at 21, I decided I wanted to have a go at writing a book. And I wrote a few pages, showed it to my friend, and his view was the same as mine. I'd chosen a good profession with information technology. <laughs> I thought I was Hemingway. And, and, and you know what? What I really needed was Philip Roth to, or someone to stat, tap me on the shoulder and say, ah, or Margaret Atwood, and say, ah, Graham, what made you think you'd be good at it right away? You're spending all this time learning to be a database designer. You don't, didn't expect to be doing that from day one. What makes you think you'd be an author from day one? You're going to have to work on this because you've got a lot of weaknesses. But if that's what you want to do. But I just let it go. And all through the years, I had this sort of magical thinking thing. You know, what's the first sentence of the great book I will write one day? Like I'm sure many, many people here, um, you have the dream, but you're not, you know, crossing the finish line, you know. That, yeah, sure, as long as you maybe want to do some training. Um, so I didn't get serious about it until I got unserious for a little while. I read a book by Joe Queenan called The Unkindest Cut um, about him making, uh, American film critic, about making a very low-budget film. And I decided to emulate him and make my own very low-budget film. I learned a whole lot along the way, caught the screenwriting bug, got some positive feedback, and I was hooked. I, I knew I wanted to write screenplays more than I wanted to do information technology anymore. I, I loved my career in IT. I really had a lot of pleasure out of it. It, it, it let me travel. It, let, it gave me mental stimulation. I met great people. But when people say, do you miss it? Uh, no. <laughs> and have you made as much money from the books as you did in IT? Um, I haven't been writing as long as I was in IT, but I make more per year, I think, now than I ever made, since you asked, in IT um, and running a business. Um, but you know, I was on a panel at one stage, and I was asked a bit of a rude question, because I was on with a, in, in Australia with a very respected author who has won many prizes but still had a day job because it's hard to make a living writing fiction, especially literary fiction. And the, and the convener said, all right, Graham, would you like to have her prizes or your money? Or your sales, they might have been polite enough to say, but that's what they meant. And I just gave him a very direct answer, which is, I'll take the sales, thanks, because it means I can support myself, I can work at the job I love. Um, 
you know, and after that, you know, if I win prizes or anything like that, I'd obviously love to, but being able to work at what you love and be able to have people read your stuff, what more could you ask? And finally, um, unless there are any other questions, a very, um, <clears throat> I think it's, it's a difficult question, but also um, hopefully for you um, a straightforward answer in the sense that, now here you've got this, these beautiful books, and particularly this one, which was your first book. You didn't, you didn't know when you wrote it it was going to be such a great success. How did you feel when it became such a great success? It became this beloved object, this precious object that people feel so passionate about. Okay, your question sort of shifted a little bit as you were asking it, because I was, as you were, started asking the question, I thought the moment that I discovered it was going to be... Okay, the, mo- the, well, the answer is in well, two ways. Well, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. because it, it happened to me in little jumps. Um, I got shortlisted for a literary prize, unpublished. That was the biggest moment, probably. That was the moment I thought, oh, wow, because I had no feedback, really, except from my wife, who'd said, mm, and my daughter who said, oh, better than I expected, Dad. And, <laughs> And my jogging buddy who said, this is the greatest book I've ever read. <laughs> so, no useful feedback. And I, I set it off to publish the end of this competition. When I got shortlisted, I thought, okay, somebody out there thinks this is real. I'm a player. I'm a contender. I can get there. You know, that I've got some validation. So that was an enormous moment. At that moment, I knew I was going to get published. I thought, this will, you know, I'm enough of a businessman, if you like. I'm going to find a publisher. This will happen. And then things, and then that, when I got published... Um, I got a very small advance. It was equal to about three days of consulting work that I was doing on the side then. Um, but I was just so excited just to be published. And then um, the Germans made me a very substantial offer for the translation rights, and that's when I knew that I was going to be in a position to, to be a full-time writer. So there were all these little steps. It wasn't just one particular day, except that day that I got shortlisted, that was a champagne day. But the second part of your question is, how do I feel about people who really love this book? Um, I, I've come to understand... First, that a, a book is a little bit like a kid, that at a certain point it's no longer you anymore. You don't, you don't sort of say, every time you love this book, you're loving me, that in fact it's, it's a separate object. It, it's got a life of its own. And, and part of that is because um, a book is 50% what I wrote and 50% what you bring to it. Everybody responds to that book differently. And look, I, the most gratifying things has been for people in the Asperger's community I had the most moving things. It was a woman who said to me, we didn't understand, you know, we bought all these books on Asperger's when my brother in his 40s was diagnosed and we finally knew what was wrong and why he'd struggled all his life. So we bought all these books on Asperger's but we didn't understand him and what was going on in his head until we read The Rosie Project after he died. And you know, you think, wow. You know, and I didn't set out to do any of that sort of thing but they have brought something to that as well, an enormous thing to, to that. So you know, I feel that I can now accept praise for the Rosie Project without feeling turning red and saying, you know, oh, you shouldn't say that about me. They're not. They're saying it about someone who's talking about their response to an object, to something I've made. Um, I'd like to thank Graham Simpson personally for calling his book The Rosie Project. Um, but I'd like to thank you for the fun and the joy and the wonderful writing and for a fantastic session. Thank you to Graham Simpson. Listening there to author Graham Simpson in conversation at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature. Uh, to find out more about Graham Simpson and all that's happening with the festival, then do go to our website, dubaii1038.com.